The last known letter we have of Paul was written to a man by the name of Timothy, in which we have entitled Second Timothy. Paul is in prison, he's about to die, and he gives this great charge, you're probably really familiar with it. But he says in the middle of this, he says, you know, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season. He says, because uh, for a time is coming when men will no longer put up with sound doctrine, instead to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of people to say what their itching ears long to hear. What was once assumed is now in question. Paul is writing about partially what I believe is taking place right now. What we believe to be true for centuries is now in question. And we looked at that several weeks ago as we began a new series uh, based on this book, Believe. Again, I want to encourage you to get one of these. If you haven't gotten one or don't have access to one, let me know and I'll get you one. Two weeks ago, we began chapter 1, and we talked about an idea that there is a God. And we went back to Joshua chapter 24, when he was talking to the Israelites after they had been given the land, the promised land that was given to them by God, and he laid down a stone, and I had D.A. come up here, and he helped carry this stone. And as we saw this stone, every time we see it, it's to serve as a reminder that there is a God. Choose for today, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Years later, God would set up a different type of reminder. It's something that we partake in every week. That as we gather together, we remember what Jesus did for us through His own flesh and His own blood. Last week, we then zoomed in a little bit more and studied the idea that not only is there a God, but it's a personal God. Not a God outside of the world looking down on the world that He created, spun, and walked away from, but a God who works personally within our lives. A God who meets us in the darkness and brings us into the light. And this week, we're going to talk about this idea of the salvation that He offers. It's amazing and incomprehensible for many people to believe that there's a God. Even more people struggle that even if there is a God, how could He possibly care about and be involved in my life? But now, we're going one step further. And we're not even going to say that there's a God or that He's even uh, in, in some way involved in your life. But we're going to go so far to say that He would send His own Son to save you. That's the kind of God that we serve. Most of you are probably familiar with what has taken place in Nazi concentration camps during World War II. It's been well documented. There have been numerous books and movies that have portrayed what life was like for those prisoners of war and those the Jews. But less was known or at least discussed in the public realm about the other countries And it seems as though we're learning that it was just as heinous to be a prisoner of war in a Japanese concentration camp uh, than it was to be in a Nazi camp. Uh, And and, uh, some of that has been brought to light, and I shared uh, uh, one 
portion of this book uh, a month or so ago, and I want to read another section from this, but I want to give you a little bit of background. Louis Zamperini uh, is uh, he's the, the main character in this book, and it's based on a true story. Uh, it's called Unbroken. You probably, if you haven't read the book, you might have seen the movie or at least heard about it being talked about. Uh, Louis Zamperini uh, was uh, an Olympian. Uh, he went off uh, into the war and he became, uh, uh, he was on a, a, a B-12, I believe it was, and they were headed over the sea uh, and they got um, caught in some gunfire and they went down. And after they had gone down, there was this search for them and the crew. Only he and two of his, his other um, uh, mates survived and they were on a boat uh, for quite a long time, one of them ended up dying on the boat, and they were on sea for months. Uh, and they learned to survive, and uh, he, he came to understand a, a little bit more about God than he ever had uh, while he was sitting at home in a comfortable chair or even going to church. He, he really learned uh, who God was. Well, uh, they made it to shore. Unfortunately, it was uh, in Japanese territory. He was taken as a prisoner uh, and was uh, ended up in a camp uh, in which they said they were not POWs, um, that they were war criminals. And because Japan had um, stated that they were war criminals, they didn't have to follow any certain rules as to how they would be treated. And they were beaten, and they were starved. And for whatever reason, the final camp that Louis Zamperini was out at, he was targeted by a man uh, who they referred to as the bird. And the bird made it his personal goal to specifically target Louis, and he would beat him. And they beat him, beat them for everything that they did and everything that they didn't do. They would ask them to do things that were humanly impossible, and they would beat them for him. If one of their um, fellow soldiers was being beaten, if you stopped to help them, you got beaten as well. If you tried to defend yourselves from the beatings, you would be beaten even worse. Uh, if you didn't understand the commands that they were yelling at uh, in Japanese, you were beaten for that. Uh, and at this point of the war, it was uh, late summer of 1945, uh, and they had been beaten almost to death, and they had been starved. Many of them had died, and they're wondering if the war is ever going to come to an end. And I, I think we, we tend to look at World War II knowing what happened at the end, but we have to remember that in August of 1945, Almost no one knew that it would end the way it was going to end. In fact, even the people who had built the atomic bomb had no idea uh, that it was actually going to work. And the, the belief was that World War II would continue on and that America would invade Japan and it would, it would lead to hundreds of thousands of lives being lost. Millions of lives were going to be lost because Japan was not going to surrender. It was going to be a long, terrible, bloody war that seemingly was not going to end. And this was what they lived with during August of 1945, specifically for those POWs who were in this camp. And I want to read a few excerpts from this because I want you to get an idea of what we're talking about, this idea of salvation. For the POWs, August 1945, time 
had almost run out. It was now approaching mid-August and the kill-all policy had loomed. Uh, What was being passed around rumored and actually took place at several other Japanese camps uh, was that uh, Japan was not going to allow any of their prisoners to survive the war, even if they had lost, even if there was some truce that was made. They had a kill-all policy that says, we are going to kill anybody uh, that is in one of our camps. And so word was getting around among the POWs. Even if Japan surrenders, many of the POWs believe that the guards would kill them anyway, either out of vengeance or to prevent them from testifying to what had been done to them. Uh, Indeed, uh, an Amori interrogator had told Commander Fitzgerald that the Japanese had plans to kill all POWs in the event they lost the war. With officials talking about taking them to a new camp in the hills, the POWs believed that the Japanese planned to dump their bodies in a mountain forest where no one would ever find them. They discussed defending themselves, but they had no answer to the 25 guards with rifles. This is at the specific camp they're at. Escape, too, was impossible. The camp was cornered against the sea and two rivers with no way to get boats for 700 prisoners. The only route out was towards the village where the sickly, weak men would be caught easily. They were fish in a barrel. Louis lingered in his bunk, fading, praying. His, in his nightmares, he and the bird fought death matches, the birth trying to, bird trying to beat him to death, Louis trying to strangle the life from the sergeant. He had been staying as far away from he could uh, from the bird who had been whipping around camp like a severed power line. But the sergeant always hunted him down. Then abruptly, the violence stopped. The bird had left camp. The guards said that he had gone to the mountains to ready the promised new camp for the POW officers. The August 22nd kill-all death date was just one week away. A few days passed by and things began to change. Uh, there, there was talks going on among the guards. Uh, they were secretly going into rooms, and no one knew what was taking place. And a few days later, a guard said something in Japanese to a prisoner named Marvin. And Marvin wasn't sure he understood. So Marvin went and he found one of his friends who was fluent in Japanese at the camp. He pulled him into the room, and he asked them what the guard had said. His friend looked at him astonished and said, The guard said, The war is over. Marvin began sobbing. He and his friend stood together, bawling like children. They were marched back into camp after their work duty. Marvin and his friend hurried among the POWs, sharing what the guard had said. But none of the listeners believed it. Everyone had heard rumors before, and each time it turned out to be false. In camp, there was no sign that anything had changed. The camp officials explained that the work had been suspended only because of a power outage. A few men celebrated the peace rumor, but Louis and many others were anticipating something very different. Someone had heard that their town, the town nearby was going to be bombed. The POWs could not sleep. 
The next morning, the POWs were in a state of confusion. The guards would tell them nothing. A day passed with no news. When night fell, men looked over the countryside and saw something they had never seen before. The village was illuminated in darkness. The blackout shades over the town had been uh, taken away. If the war had ended, the guards, excuse me, the shades had been taken down. As a test, some of the POWs removed the shades from their barrack windows and the guards ordered them to put the shades back up. If the war had ended, the guards were going to considerable lengths to hide this fact from the POWs. The kill-all date was now only five days away. Several days passed and there's still more confusion. On August 20th, a white sky stretched over the city, heavy and threatening. There was a shout in the compound. All POWs were to assemble outside. Some 700 men tramped out of the barracks and formed lines before the building. The little camp commander, gloves in his hands, a sword on his hip, stepped out atop of the air raid spotter's platform. The commander spoke. And the translator said this. The war has come to a point in which it will end. There was no reaction from the POWs. Some believed it. But others kept silent for fear of being beaten. Others suspected it was a trick. and They didn't say a word. The commander went on, speaking as if the POWs were his old friends. He voiced his hope that the prisoners would help Japan fight the Red Menace, the Soviet Union, which had just seized Japan's islands. With the commander's speech finished and the POWs waiting in suspicious silence, one of the guards invited the POWs to bathe in the river. This too was quite odd. The men had only rarely been allowed to go to the river. The POWs broke from their lines and began hiking down to the water, dropping clothes as they walked. Louis dragged along after them, peeled off his clothes, and waded in. All over the river, the men scattered, scrubbing their skin, unsure what was happening. And then they heard it. It was the growl of an aircraft engine, huge, low, and close. The swimmers looked up and at first saw something but the overcast sky. Then there it was, bursting from the clouds, a torpedo bomber. As the men watched, the bomber dove, leveled off, and skimmed over the water, its engine screaming. The POWs looked up at it. The bomber was headed straight towards them. In the instant before the plane uh, uh, shot overhead, the men in the water could just make out the cockpit, and inside, the pilot standing. Then the bomber was right over them. On each side of the fuselage, on the underside of each wing, there was a broad white star in a blue circle. This plane 
was not Japanese. It was American. The plane's red code light was blinking rapidly. A radio man in the water near Louis read its signals and suddenly cried out, Oh, the war is over. In seconds, masses of naked men were stampeding out of the river and up the hill. As the plane turned loops above, the pilot waving, the POWs swarmed into the compound, out of their minds with relief and rapture. Their fears of the guard of the massacre that had so long awaited them dispersed by the roar and the muscle of the bomber. The prisoners jumped up and down, shouted and sobbed. Some scrambled onto camp roofs, waving their arms and singing out their joy to the pilot above. Others piled against the camp fence and sent it crashing over. Some found matches, and soon the entire length of the fence was burning. The Japanese shrank back and withdrew. In the midst of the running, celebrating men, Louis stood with wavering legs, emaciated, sick, and dripping wet. In his tired mind, two words were repeating themselves over and over. I'm free. I'm free. I'm free. I can't imagine the horrors of these, these men had and even the horrors they would have after they would leave that concentration camp where they had been brutalized, dehumanized, starved, where many of their friends they watched slowly die the most excruciating, humiliating death. That is what they expected to happen to each one of them. They knew of beatings, They knew of spit in their face. They knew of starvation. They knew that death was coming. Even to the very end, the expectation was they would never see life outside of the camp. After it had been proclaimed that the war was over and they were sent down to the river, the moment they saw that bomber coming down, they thought they brought us into the river to make the killing easier for them. And at that very last instance, when that plane got close enough and they were able to see not a red circle, but a white star, they knew that they had a shot to live. And prior to that, it had hardly existed. Can you imagine the excitement of those men, 700 men, who had spent years in that camp, knowing that they weren't going to die? I don't know if I can in any way talk about salvation and not think about how they felt when they realized that that plane came for them. As we look at a God who created the world, as we look at a God who would come in and inhabit this world, and as we encounter 
and come to know a God who would die for this world. We should enter into it with the same excitement of those men awaiting their own death in that river and realizing that the plain overhead was not the enemy, but it was proclaiming their salvation. I have never been in any type of camp that is as horrific as what those men went through. My idea of camp involves little kids and singing songs and maybe some subpar cafeteria food. They went through the very worst. But when that plane came, they realized everything was going to change. Folks, we have to realize that we spiritually were in that river looking up at our death. Because the sentence upon each one of us because of our sin is death. We talked about several weeks ago We don't believe in a God who spun the world and walked away. That's deism. We also don't believe where God's going to come back and say, hey, everybody who was going to be born is saved. That's universalism. We believe that there is one God who sent His one Son who saved the world and only through Him are people saved. But folks, we are saved. It may have been a long time ago since you were in that river and you came to that realization, but I want to remind each one of you that we have been saved. We have hope, not because of a plane, but because of a carpenter named Jesus, who is the Son of God, who came down and said, let me tell you about a Father who loves you. He's my Father, and He's your Father, and He sent me, and I'm going to redeem you. And it's going to cost my blood, but I'm going to do it for each one of you. We have salvation. Now, I don't know about you, but that makes me really, really excited all of a sudden, I'm not as worried about what's going on in Washington because I know that I'm saved. There is no oil crisis. There is no crash. There is no Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, Independent, anybody who is ever going to walk into Washington or into Hobbes that will take away my salvation. Right? Now, are we excited about that? Now, not everybody has to jump up and down and wave and smile, but I want your life to be drastically changed by Jesus Christ and what He did. It has to be changed. You look all throughout the the Scriptures. There is no one who encountered Jesus who didn't walk away changed. You have to believe We have salvation. Now, every one of you has your own experiences and you have come to meet Jesus in your own unique way. 
I have one that I've shared with a few people. My experience with coming to understand who Jesus is and what He did for me happened late in life. And some of you will say, wait, you you grew up in the church. Last week I showed you a picture of where that church once was on Mayfield Road. I could talk about when I was baptized at 12 years old at Iron Springs Christian Camp in their pool. But I can tell you that all my years in VBS and growing up in church and being the son of a deacon and a, a, a VBS coordinator and literally having spent so much time in that building, I just missed out. I went to a private school from fourth grade until I graduated. We had Bible class every day. We had chapel every day. We would have speakers come into chapel and they would uh, share these, these different stories about God's love and grace and mercy. And I bought part of it. I did. I thought that's good. That's great. I believe there's a God. I believe He sent His Son. But somewhere, Jesus made it down to earth and He really reached all across the world. But there was one area that He missed and it was in my life. Because I bought in to the lies that Jesus didn't save me. And I lived a life not believing that I was saved. And I always questioned it. And I always wondered if I was good enough or if God would forgive me. I went off to Abilene Christian University and extended my time where I was taking classes that involved the Bible and I was going to chapel every day. I interned at churches during the summertime. I graduated with a degree from ACU in ministry. And I still didn't buy in to a Jesus that saved me. And having joy was harder. I could laugh and smile and joke, but the idea of resting that Jesus loved me was a foreign concept. Don't get me wrong. I started youth ministry, and I began teaching that and telling other kids that God loved them, and they were saved. But between God and I, we knew that I wasn't. And it wasn't because of Him, it was because of me. And my... My day in the river happened early one morning when I was in Galveston, Texas. I had been a youth minister for about five years, uh, and I'd gone to NCYM, which is National Conference for Youth Ministry. And I'd gotten up early that morning, I've shared with some of you before, and I went to the top of this hotel, which if you know Galveston, it's not the most beautiful place, but there is an ocean right there. And I went to the top of uh, this hotel, which placed me on the seventh story, I believe it was, and it was this big, huge um, uh, room in which they, they served people, big round tables, uh, and they were all the, everything was set out, the tablecloths were there, and I didn't sit at the table. I just went down by the window and I was looking out over the ocean and I, I, I started praying. And it was the prayer I had prayed so many times before. God, I love you. I am so sorry for what I've done. Please forgive me. 
I wish, I wish you, I wish you would love me. It was the prayer I had prayed so many times before. And it's maybe the prayer that some of you have prayed. God, if you could just love me. And I had that moment. And there was nothing inside that went on. There was no voice that could be recorded. But somehow, I believe God spoke to me that morning. And what I heard in my heart and what I felt was, Doug, I love you. And it went from a Japanese bomber about to take my life to an American plane saying, you have been saved. I gave everything. Now, I wish I could tell you that every day since then, I have lived in in the joy of being saved, and it's not always there. And there are plenty of days where I get caught up and I struggle with that. But I want you to know that we are a transformed people, not just because there's a God, not just because He inhabits this world, but because we have a God who not only came here, but He came and He offered His life for us. And we have, we have, we have salvation. Now, I don't know how you celebrate. I don't know if it's with a smile. I don't know if if it's stand up and scream like a crazy person because your team just scored a touchdown. I don't know if it's you fall down on your knees and sob. But there has to be something that takes place in your heart when you come to realize what Jesus has done for you. Now let me tell you what it's done for me is that ever since then, I have wanted to find ways to come to know Him on a deeper level. Because if He's willing to come down to earth and give Himself up for me, then that's the kind of God that I want to be near to and I want to be close. And I just want to encourage you to come to get to know Him. If you have forgotten that you have a God who saves you, I want to remind you right now. We didn't start off with our Scripture. We're going to end with it, but it's not going to be me. We're going to do all of this together. You probably know this by memory. If you don't, you can turn to the third chapter of John. Otherwise, uh, you can open up your books. Uh, we're in the third chapter, and you can read along with me here. It is found on page 58. We're going to read this in bold together. It's the third chapter of John. After this, we'll be led in our song of invitation. But let me remind you one more time about a God and the salvation He offers. Page 58, or in your Bibles, it's John chapter 3. It's the 16th verse. It says this. Everybody together with me. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Two words, I'm saved. If you want to be saved this morning, we want to invite you into a relationship with Jesus, and we will baptize you in these waters right now, and you can come up from those waters, and you can repeat those two words over and over again, I'm saved. If you're not, we want to encourage you to come as we stand and sing.